Welcome to the Water People Podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Hill, along with my partner, Dave Rastovich. This season is supported by Patagonia, whose purpose-driven mission is to use business to save our home planet. Most of us know something of the lore of Waikiki Beach Boys, those legendary Hawaiian watermen like Duke Hanamoku and Rabbit Keikai, who regulated the turf of one of surfing's most fabled beaches. But where were the wahine? Today, we're in conversation with original Waikiki wahine beach boy, Laula Lake, champion outrigger paddler, surfer, and ocean safety advocate. Laula grew up in the oceanfront cottages of the Royal Hawaiian Hotel, where her mother worked, and received her Waikiki Beach Boy license in 1970. She helped found the Hawaii Women's Surfing Hui, which was part of opening the door to the formation of women's professional surfing. Today, Laula lives and plays on the island of Kauai with her family. In 2020, on the eve of turning 70, she became the first female president of the Kauai Lifeguard Association. We acknowledge the Bundjalung Nation, the first and ongoing custodians of the land and waters where we work and play, who have lived, worked, and cared for this sea country for tens of thousands of years. Respect and gratitude to all First Nations people who continue to practice the cultural, spiritual, and educational customs of their ancestors. We always begin these conversations in the same place. Can you share with us about a time or experience after which you were never the same? I remember riding a wave. I had to be under five because thinking about where this happened, and it was on my father's redwood surfboard in Waikiki on the side of the natatorium, and my father was getting ready to push me on a wave. And I just remember screaming, no, it's too big, it's too big. You know, I was like deathly afraid because, you know, whitewater to a toddler, it just, it just seemed giant. And he pushed me anyway. And I just was screaming the entire way to the shore. And then at the end, I just remember stopping and thinking that was, of course, you know, in my three-year-old mind or four-year-old mind, that was awesome. That was so exhilarating. I wanted to do it again. And so it went back, oh, let's do that again. Let's do that again. And then that was it. You know, that was it for me as far as moving on a surfboard or on any type of platform that would move across the water quickly. And so I, I think that was the beginning of my passion for, for surfing. Well, I wish I had such a experience at such a young age. And I, I would have to think that that is not a super uncommon story in the island's of Hawaii. No. And then when I thought about it too, I went, gosh, you know, if, if I was three or four, it meant that my dad at the time was like 25 or 26. Wow. When I think, when I think back on what, what we think of 26 year olds now, we're going, wow, that was so young, so mm. young. Mm. <laughs> uh, and so that was the first time I actually thought about him. This whole time when thinking back on my first experience, because people always ask me about my first wave. Do you remember your first wave? I always think about me and the board and the place. Mm. And for the first time, just in the last 24 hours, I actually thought about my father. Was he a water person? Were both of your parents water people? Yes. In fact, my father 
and my mother both surfed and my father taught my brothers and uh, me. I have three brothers and we were all, are all, we're all goofy foots. And so I tried to think about how did that happen? Because we're not all left-handed, but I traced that back in my memory to a skateboard that my dad built for us to practice going down the hill on. And he painted the feet on top of the skateboard and he put the right foot forward (laughs) and the left foot back. (laughs) That is classic. (laughs) So I think that's how we developed all being goofy foot because we figured, oh, our right foot's supposed to be forward. Wow. And and Redwood, Lala, uh, that is such a unique uh, first surfboard experience. Do you remember anything of that? Yes. I mean, I do remember the Redwood board. And I remember in our garage, we had this, I think they call it a plug. It was something that uh, shapers used back then. I, I don't. I don't even know why we had it, but we had a lot of things in our garage. We had a lot of redwood things. One was a board. And then I remember the time when, okay, I'm going to make a lighter board now and it's going to be made out of balsa. And mm-hmm. so then we, we, we moved on to a lighter board, a balsa board. And then by then my brothers and I were surfing and I was you know, more like 10 years old. We were surfing on this balsa board and then it went to foam. Uh, but yeah, so I, I do, I remember it all really clearly. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I had an amazing childhood of just wonderful memories because Waikiki back then was, still is to me, so magical. If you go early in the morning or if you go right before sunset, when all the people have departed the sands, the water is so friendly. And I think it's because the reef is so much further out. I mean, there are those reefs that form along the whole coastline of the South Shore. And, you know, I got very spoiled because... My mother worked for a hotel called the Royal Hawaiian, the pink. I don't know. Are you familiar with the Royal Hawaiian? Mm -hmm. So um, she worked for that hotel. And when I was like 10 or 11, I had another experience in life. And it was interesting that you asked about my two experiences after which I was never the same. That experience didn't involve water. It involved fire. I was home with my brothers and we were home alone and our house caught on fire and burned to the ground. What ended up happening, though, was the uh, Royal Hawaiian had cottages that were right on the beach at Waikiki, where the Sheraton is now. And they said, well, you don't have a home to live in. You come live here. because my." And so we got to live on the beach in Waikiki. It it was the most magical. As kids, we were so stoked that our house (laughs) burned down. Because we're like, yay, man, this is awesome. So, um, you know, right there was we surfed every single day we'd build teepees in the sand it was very safe back then we'd be build teepees with our surfboards and sleep and paddle out at night and paddle out in the day and my dad played hawaiian music right there at the holly kulani so we would paddle in in the evening and sit on our boards and listen to him play music you couldn't write a script for Mm. a b-rated surf movie with all these um, (laughs) things that were that truly (laughs) i got to live when we get the privilege of being in Waikiki on Oahu, especially surfing at Waikiki, I get a sense of the ancient lineage of riding waves of surfing. Did you have a sense of that growing up there? You know, when you're in something, when you're immersed in it, you just a lot of times take it for granted. You don't think about those things. 
So mm-hmm. I, I was so young at the time that no, I didn't, but I do now, you mm-hmm. know, look, looking back, looking back can be a really good thing. Sometimes you, you start to really develop the gratitude for how many things that you've been able to experience in life. And I try to pass that on to others that, you know, just be grateful. Every, every day you have a breath, you know, you just, just be grateful. You know, people ask me, Oh, how are you? And I said, I'm great. Look where I live. And look, I, (laughs) I can see, I have two arms. I have two legs. I can walk. I can hear. I can see what is not to be grateful for. Mm. I'm, I, you know, I'm not in Kiev. You know, I'm not in Ukraine mm. or Bosnia. So it's mm. there's a lot to be grateful for. What role did Hawaiian culture play in shaping your young years? Well, I think I was expected because I come from a line of Hawaiian musicians and dancers and um, just Hawaiians in general that. I believe that in my particular family, it was expected that maybe I would be a dancer or a musician. And I did dance hula right there. There's a hotel called the, um, you know what it's called, what used to be Kaimana Beach, New Otani Hotel, the San Susi right there. I danced hula at that time, but it just, the call of the ocean was just, this isn't the way I want to go in life. You know, I'd look out in the ocean, see my friends surfing. I go, I just wanted to not pursue the, um, Hawaiian arts so much other than just surfing any kind of uh, wave riding vehicle was really kind of in my blood. And so um, that's the call that I followed. Did your mom continue surfing after she had you kids? Yes, she did. But she said she, it, it wasn't natural for her. She was more of a a, a people person. She worked in sales, PR. Um, she was a networker before networking was a word. A pioneer of sorts. I mean, she was one of the first women to be the head of the, it was like a Hawaii Hotel Association. Uh, she was very much, we were very much involved in Waikiki, the industry of tourism, surfing, entertainment. So, I mean, just Waikiki is pretty much in my blood, I, I would say. So, um, I'm curious about the influx of what's the word, not mainland anymore. We learned when we were visiting Hawaii that mainland, when you use that about the U.S., it, it implies that it's the mainland of Hawaii, when it, which it's not. So maybe we can refer to it as the continent. I was wanting to ask you about continental Americans and the influx into Waikiki, into Hawaii, and how you saw that change things, if at all. Remind me to get back to your question. But something popped up when you said mainland and that you're trying to be, you know, politically correct. We grew up in a society that was so used to Filipinos, Japanese, Koreans, Hawaiians. We didn't take offense to things like that. Mm. You know, I, I to this day call myself a steersman. I don't say, oh, excuse me, stairs woman. I mean, sorry if that does bother somebody, but I, it, it, it never, bo- it doesn't bother me because we grew up, you know, interchanging things that I could see now could be very, very, uh, I, there are certain words that I understand are very derogatory, very, what's the word, disrespectful. I, I'm more sensitive now, but I think it's almost gone overboard, you know, just uh, that so sensitive. But I appreciate your sensitivity to that. I, I really do, because um, for so long, I think Hawaii 
or the Hawaiians maybe have been taken advantage of in a lot of ways, but the, the influx, there's always good and bad. And I just this last, so in June, the girls like Sonoy's always wanted, every time I reach a new decade, she always wants to have a party. Oh, you're 50. We have to have a 50th birthday party. You're 60. We have to have 60. You're 70. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I don't want to have a 70th birthday party. So we decided, she goes, well, let's go on a surf trip. Where do you want to go? And a friend of mine had been going to this place in Mexico. And so we went to this little town in Mexico. And I really even hesitate to say the name because it reminds me of any town, anywhere that people start going to that, of course, you know, once surfers get the, whoa, that's a cool place to surf, let's go. And that has been happening to this little town. And I asked one of the locals there, how do you feel about this people coming in and building homes here, renting them out as Airbnbs? And, you know, he said, well, it, it's good and bad. You know, it's the same thing. At, at least I believe that the locals there, at least I'm hoping that they keep their eyes wide open as to what could happen and how not to get taken advantage of by too many people coming too quickly. I think that happened here. And, you know, it just once it started, you know, it's like a avalanche. I mean, it starts as a trickle. And before you know it, it's just, Mm -hmm. you know, it's overflowing, but Mm -hmm. um, it's understandable. I mean, we are in the middle of the Pacific. It's nearly perfect as far as weather. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and surf oh yeah and you know i mean it's it it, it it's really pretty perfect mm. as far as really and the water temperature so i can see why people are tr- attracted to it um you can't blame them for wanting to come here i think it's when people come here and want to make it like where they're from maybe like come here and then all of a sudden gate the community put up a private property sign no trespass then that's where it becomes harder to live with. Mm. Uh, Lala, I was just thinking then when you were speaking about our chat with Jock and he mentioned how he has friends his age, perhaps on the north shore of Oahu, who have rigidly drawn a line in the sand saying they won't surf one spot here or one spot there, they won't surf Sunset Beach or they won't surf many other places because it's it's not the way it used to be and and I really appreciated his ability to um, still see so much beauty in the water along the coast, um, in the lineups, in the busy lineups too, and his ability to not become a rigid old man like so many of us blokes can easily become. And uh, and then it made me just then I was thinking about made me think about when we were in Oahu and at Waikiki and the beach was packed. And there was people everywhere and it was absolute chaos in some respects. But the beauty of the water and the texture of that all-day offshore wind and the shape of the mountains and just that spirit of the place was so obviously still there for us to experience. And I was just wondering how you navigate that, how how you have a vibrancy to you, how you have that stoke. And when you said, you know, you you still see it when you're there early morning in Waikiki or late at sundown in Waikiki, you feel that beautiful nature of the place there. How do you do that? It's. I think it's what you focus on. You know, you can focus. It's like looking at the white paper that has a black dot on it. 
You're just going, okay, that has one black dot. Am I going to focus on that or am I going to focus on the white paper? I don't look at the people. I, like you said, I look at the water, the ocean, the, just like, there's no other water like this. It's the one place that I've actually been swimming a mile offshore and the sand below you looks like a rolling desert of sand. I just remember the one time thinking to myself, I wouldn't even be afraid right now if a shark um, swam under me because it's so peaceful out here that it's just so beautiful that I just think about those times. And you're right. You look out at the ocean and it's unlike any ocean anywhere else. It is really, um, I think there are beautiful oceans, other places. I've seen some wonderful pictures of the Philippines and I've been to Cook Islands and, you know, New Zealand, but there's something I think about the, uh, generations of, and the Aloha spirit and the Hawaiian culture that is in every, you know, in all the elements here in the islands that it doesn't affect me. I think the way it affects some people. And sometimes people will say, oh, Oahu, or they'll just like throw out Waikiki, throw out Oahu, throw out the North Shore, throw, and and just be sort of disgusted with it, like you said. And I think to myself, well, let them. You know, if everybody in the world felt the same way I did, it would probably be more packed. So it's just as well, <laughs> you know, let them yeah. think it's terrible. Don't go there. You know, <laughs> it's, it's okay. Um, but, you know, every time my husband and I go, like if we land in Honolulu from Kauai, we always take a drive down, you know, down Kalakaua Avenue and go along and just, I go and, and drive around Diamond Head and, you know, we go the ocean route just to look at the water, you know, just to even just to look at it and just because it's, it's so special. So mm. I appreciate that. And, and it was really neat listening to Jock because all the places that he went, he's, he's, he's a little, he's a little older than I am, but I, I remember all of those years that, and the places that he said he can still surf. Like he mentioned, I think he mentioned Holton's over by, mm. it's just between Laniakea and, and, and Jocko's. And yeah, I remember looking at that. I never really had to surf there because when I was surfing, there weren't that many women out. So it wasn't really overcrowded yet. But what I've done in this decade of my life is I've just started to go out and just dawn patrol. I mean, a dawn patrol like I never had before, <laughs> walking down a trail with a flashlight, you know, with um, with a few other dawn patrollers, you know, and it's like, it, it's pretty cool. I go, this is good. By 7 a.m., we're walking out. Yeah. On that note, Lala, can you share with us about the philosophy of Maka'ala? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Okay. Well, um, what was funny was at this place that I go now where I dawn patrol, it was there that I met a girl that actually wrote an article about me and said, boy, that concept of maka ala that you said, maka meaning I, ala means to awaken or be awake or be alert. The first thing I teach, well, I teach water safety to to people. And, you know, the first thing I do when I go somewhere is I don't just go to the surf spot and go out. I'll stop. And of course, you know, surfers are constantly looking out at the ocean. Oh, where's it breaking today? Where am I going to take off? Where do I pal? Who's out? You know, and just, you learn a lot by just watching first, you know, before you go, like, should I just cross this river or should I wait and see? Is it like, is, is this how the river normally is? Um, 
It's just taking a moment to notice what's going on around you. I do that at the ocean all the time. But even on land, like the other day, I noticed that traffic was backed up a little bit more than normal. And I thought, man, you know what? I bet there's an accident. I'm going to go around this other way, which was a much longer way. But I came out and I went, oh, there was an accident. And somebody that hadn't been paying attention to the traffic piling up said they spent three hours in traffic and I just sailed through because I, you know, so it's just little things like that. If you have that awareness all the time, but especially in the water and around the ocean, because the element of water, it's life or death. I don't know how to expound on that anymore, but you, you know what I mean? You, you're either breathing or you're not breathing. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it's so, really clear. Yep. Yeah. Oxygen, no oxygen. And certainly in the water there, on all the islands of Hawaii, it just is so powerful. And for those of us coming from other parts of the world where um, certainly there's a lot of strong water, you still, it, it is like a rite of passage going to Hawaii and feeling the, the power of the water there. And it's amazing that you have that uh, motivation to, to work with parents, people, children, all ages to, to ensure people have that awareness. I was wondering if you could share with us a little bit about that water safety journey or some of the efforts you're involved in. Yes, I would be happy to do that. But let me circle back now to the Maka'ala. Do you mind? You know what? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Sure. Go yeah, yeah. No, no please. I, I really wanted to ask where you first encountered that concept. That's a good question. Where I first encountered it, I don't know. I mean, I'd have to think about that for a while, but I will (laughs) say this, the more recent one that I think people can apply a lot to their own lives that actually brought me closer to this one woman, because from there, um, it opened the door to a lot of other um, opportunities to teach and to share and to uh, with with other women and uh, get them involved as helpers to, you know, my water safety um, endeavors. But it started with being on the beach where I surf now early in the morning and looking out and seeing this one guy, I call it kind of like Kung Fu surfing because, you know, they're just, they're they're just really sort of, um, you know, a lot of arms. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. A lot of arms, a lot of active, you know, just, and he was all over the place. And I thought, okay, there's one guy that I want to kind of stay away from because I was also noticing that he was circling and going back out, circling, you know, you know, very erratic. And I thought, well, I'm going to stay away from that guy. And then so I'm kind of sitting away from him with a group of women. And then one gal in particular started getting a little too close to him. And then they got in a super loud, very violent altercation. And so the group of women that was sitting by me, I said, okay, here's a teachable moment. First of all, um, he was being kind of wave hoggy, but so was she. And you get too close together. And I thought, you know, this, that was kind of a recipe for eventual disaster. And so when I told this one girl, that's when I had the chance to tell her about this concept of Maka'ala. You come to the beach, you first, you look around and I knew immediately I'm staying away from that guy or it's like anything. It's low tide. I'm staying away from those rocks. Or, you know, today there's a tree stump in the water right here because there's been rain. I mean, whatever it is, you know, the conditions change daily. So you constantly have to keep your antenna up, your eyes open, you know, your um, awareness on so many levels, not just your eyes and your ears. It, 
but your heart, like sometimes there's an individual that, um, was it Jock's interview where he said, you know, I'm not sure where I heard this about a guy that, you know, or somebody just, just like, you know what, go ahead and have that wave. I do that a lot at the spot that I go to because it gets really crowded. And if I see somebody having trouble, I, I say to myself and to them, because they go, I'm sorry, that was your wave. And I just go, you know what, I look back on my life and I go, I have caught so many perfect waves uncrowded in my life that if I never catch another perfect wave, it doesn't matter. In the big scheme of things, I've been so blessed and I'm full. It's okay. You know, (laughs) you go. (laughs) Um, So... So let's come back then. Okay, now I'll go back to your water safety question. And um, I believe, you know, when I thought back on what got me so passionate about that, and I think it was the fire. It was interesting that I had a water experience and a fire experience. And those both changed the trajectory of my life. Totally, you know, but still coming back to water. But the fire, you know, after that, I always thought about how do I escape a dangerous situation? Like in every situation. So that's how I became um, safety conscious about everything. Like I'm in a house. Okay. If a fire starts, what's my escape plan? I'm on the ocean. This happens. What's my escape? What's my plan B? What's? And then I worked for the airlines for a while. And it's like, every time I get on a flight, I sit down, I sit close to a exit row and they say, count how many rose in your head if you had to crawl on the ground, you know, and wear shoes you can run in, you know, all all kinds of things like that. Um, And I think it was from that fire, like um, that sort of triggered something in me to how can you prevent tragedy? Like there's going to be accidents, you know, somebody's going to blindside you. Accidents will happen, but if they could be prevented, that's where it's really tragic. Like teach the kids how to swim teach them. Um, we got involved in this program um, that wasn't necessarily teaching young people how to swim per se, but it was how not to drown. Cause that was mm-hmm. the first step, you know, just like, cause a lot of schools wouldn't let us teach the kids. They didn't want us to take them into water because of the liability, but so mm-hmm. we could teach them a lot of things. You can teach somebody that's in a wheelchair can help with water safety because almost everybody has a phone in their hand and they can call 911. I mean, there's, there's just so many things and, and seeing drowning victims and, you know, just seeing things that could have been prevented. That's where I started developing a, just a real passion for water safety and trying to help people. We're surrounded. Look at Hawaii on a map. It's kind of, it's almost scary because you go, God, there's so much water around us. I'm surprised we haven't been swallowed by the Pacific Ocean. We're surrounded by water. And yet there's so many, especially local kids, um, the highest rate of drowning of young people in Hawaii, young people is, is local kids. Mm. And um, on our island, we did this, you know, safety class for the second graders that were out on the west side of our island. And out of I don't know, all the second graders, there were maybe three that could swim. And that was shocking to me. I mean, I almost, when I went to um, some of the funders for these programs to ask them about helping to fund the busing and the paying of the water safety officers to teach them, and it would almost bring me to tears every time because when I saw the fear in the eyes of some of these students whenever they were around water, and we were teaching in a pool 
And there were a couple of kids that started crying just sitting by the side of the pool. That's how afraid they were of water. How do you make sense of why those children aren't given access to the ability to swim? Their parents can't swim and the parents are afraid. And so the fear gets handed down to the next generation. So there were some parents that didn't want their kids to be involved with the swim program, but we invited them to it. And and once they saw how empowering it would be for their children, because they love to go to the beach, but I just go, you can't take your kids to the beach if number one, you don't even know how to save them. They don't know how to save themselves. So I think it's handed down to them, you know, by their, their, their um, caregivers, parents, or sometimes it's grandparents, you know, in um, a lot of these societies. It's just shocking to me and also such a legacy of colonialism. Island people can end up afraid of the ocean after having such rich and expert water cultures. Um, Yeah, well, you know, we used to, growing up in Hawaii, everybody that hit, I think it was like somewhere between second and fourth grade, we always had learned to swim classes. All the kids would go to the beach, they would bus us there or we would walk there and we had learned to swim classes. But because we turned into such a litigious society and all of a sudden the um, Department of Education didn't want the liability of people suing for, you know, maybe one kid drowned. Some I, I'm not sure what happened, but it it that put a stop to all learn to swim classes for decades. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until a couple of years ago that there was a, a wealthy man that made a bunch of money in Silicon Valley. He said, you know what? We need to bring this learn to swim or it was more learn. It's kind of learn to swim, but more also not how, how not to drown program to every second grader in the entire state. And he funded it. So I was involved with that. And that's where I began to see the problem and um, the solutions to helping the youth and he did a, um, you know, being an IT guy, he did some research and the data showed that kids that are seven years old, um, it's the first age at which you can teach them these concepts that he had put together in this program and that they will retain them for the rest of their lives. So that's why he hit second graders. Hmm. And so he offered the program free to all the second graders in the entire state. But shut down during COVID, but it's reopening again this next year. Mm. So that's something to look forward to. Mm. Is that work in association with the Kauai Lifeguards Association? The Kauai Lifeguard Association, it's an it's an interesting concept. We are the Lifeguard Association is a nonprofit that is made up mostly of volunteers that are passionate about helping the guards. Now, the guards themselves are hired by the county. They're under, uh, they're called the Ocean Safety Bureau. So we're kind of like their booster club. We help them where they need whatever we can do that's within our jurisdiction. But we also try to not just help the guards. We want to help the community at large, like the groups that maybe the guards can't reach because the guards are only on duty from like I don't know, nine in the morning to five, and then they go home. So we're trying to reach the larger community that that the guards can't reach on the hours. Like, you know, there's a lot of kids that go to the beach early or go after five, you know, when there are no guards there. So that's really become 
our multi-pronged, I would say, target audience. And not just youth, because there's a bunch of um, older folks, kupuna, that have never learned how to swim. And they're almost embarrassed to admit it. So we want to, you know, reach out to them too. Like, hey, you know, no shame, man. Life is a constant journey of learning. If you're open and you're willing to learn, you will learn. Apologies for interrupting the conversation, but we'd like to take a moment to recognize the generous folks who help make this podcast possible. Sun Butter Skincare is committed to protecting people and the planet. They make vegan, reef-safe SPF 50 sunscreen packaged in reusable and recyclable tins. They're also the world's first certified palm oil-free sunscreen brand. Check out sunbutter.com.au to learn more about their skin and ocean-friendly lines of sunscreen, surf zinc, and skincare. Thanks also to Gary McNeil Concepts, who make cosmic surfboards for cosmic people. Gaz's boards combine recycled and plant-based materials that are built to last without sacrificing performance. To learn more, head to garymcnealconcepts.com. Speaking of that, Lala, my mom has always been a water woman. She used to paddle outrigger canoes a lot with a, a big group of friends um, on the Gold Coast and always was participating in ocean swims up and down the coast here in Australia. And she's gone to Hawaii and done the swim at Waikiki there. And just a few years ago, in her 60s, she took up surfboard riding and is now a complete surf rat. She's sending us surf reports every chance she can and or, or she's got one of those fancy watches that tells her how long her late her last ride was in her last surf and stuff like that. And so she, <laughs> she sends us all of this really enthusiastic information and messages about it. But we also see how meaningful it is for her at this point in her life to have the newness learning a new skill in the ocean you know and like you were saying the conditions change every day you know you can just swim or canoe paddle your whole life and every day the the water is different and it's fresh for you but for her right now with surfboard riding it's just amazing at at a period in her life where you know there's health issues there's health issues with for her partner, there, there are challenges of age happening, but it is getting in the water and it is st- standing up and gliding along on a wave for a moment that just completely rejuvenates and re-energizes her. Can you relate to that? Oh, absolutely. Because you want to do that again. You go, oh, I want that feeling again. You know, I hate to use the word addiction, but it, it kind of, you want it, you know, it, it is sort of an addiction, but you know, it's a, it's a, it's a good, healthy one. And, you know, so much about life in general is just perspective. You know, I, I have a friend, oh my gosh, he's probably going to listen to this. Maybe I won't tell him about it because I'm talking about him and I know he knows who I am. and he thinks he can't surf anymore. And I don't believe it. I just go, you know, there's so much you can do. There's a way I went to Oahu once to help with them. There's a group there called Access Surf. And I go, look, if these people can get on a board, you know, with help. I mean, there are people that I don't even think they can. They're paraplegics. They need people to help them put them on a chair. 
that's on a board and someone pushes them. So I think there's just almost no excuse for anyone not to be able to ride a wave mm-hmm. if if you really want to. You know, if you really want to, there, I, I really, where there's a will, there's a way. I, I feel like it's like a mouse in a maze and going, okay, no roadblock there. That's not the way. Let's try this other way. Oh, no, that way. Okay. There's a way out. You know, mm. that there is a way you have to just keep uh, having an optimistic attitude or you end up like those guys like that Jock was talking about, you know, just bitter old guys that can't see the sunlight, you know, through mm. the clouds. It's up there. You know, you just can't see it, but it's there. And, you know, I'll give you another example. I had a friend that said when I had started getting into ocean swimming and his wife uh, wanted to swim, but she had a shoulder injury. And so she had surgery and she couldn't swim. They had to stop swimming because her shoulder was still hurting. You know, it had been a year and I went, what? She hasn't swum in a year? I said, wait a minute, that what shoulder, her left shoulder? I said, yeah, but she still has a right arm, right? And he goes, yeah. I said, okay, you know what you need to do? You need to go. Have you ever watched the Paralympics? And they hadn't. And I said, you need to watch the Paralympics and go to the swimming Paralympics and watch what those people with no arms do, Mm. how they get there. I said, she's still got a right arm. So Mm. I want you to watch that this weekend. So I talked to him on a Friday and then I saw him on Monday and he goes, guess what we did this weekend? (laughs) We watched the Paralympics and we went swimming. And I went, Mm. there you go. I mean, it's like, you can do it where there's a will, there's a way. Just have to keep an optimistic attitude. Mm. Um, So, Your daughter, Sanoi, is a well-known surfer, (laughs) most notably for being featured in Blue Crush, the film. What role did you play in fostering Sanoi's love of the ocean? And do you feel like it comes from within or... This surfing life, passion for the ocean can be something that we parent into being. That's something you might have to ask her <laughs> um, because I, I don't think she had a choice. You know, kids don't have a choice. That's why it's so important to be a good parent, which I just really don't feel like I was because oh. I was so focused on surfing that all I could think about, you know, like your mom, she's got that bug, you know, when you're, mm-hmm. when surfing is it, it, you know, that's all you can think about. When am I going to go get surfing again? And um, I would just take Sonoy with me to the beach and we would take turns watching. I'd go out surfing and, and, you know, some of my girlfriends would watch the kids and then they'd go out surfing and that's how it was. And whether she liked it or not, she was at the beach. And then her dad took her, I mean, next level. He, he would take her out to like some gnarly places. This was, you know, right when leashes just started becoming something commonplace and he wouldn't even put a leash on her. And I thought, Oh my God, she's going to, he's going to lose her like acid drop. I don't know if you've ever been to Hawaii. Mm -hmm. You take her out to acid drop. And like, I go, you lose that little two-year-old in this stuff and you're not going to find, I mean, it just, so as a result, I think she'd been around him maybe. And, and, some of the adventures that I guess maybe between he and I, she she didn't develop any natural fear factor. <laughs> Just, yeah. She doesn't have a fear. She doesn't have a fear of heights. I I I don't I don't know. I'm not sure. So I I really don't know if it was from me to her. But I know that in our lineage of women, 
looking back at my great grandmother, my great grandmother was a, I think she was one of the first women to ride a horse and ride a motorbike or something like that in the, in, in Hawaii. I mean, we just, we, there were a lot of firsts. So we're always kind of a little adventurous, all, all the women. And my mom was a um, competitive swimmer. She was captain of her swim team in high school. And she also won her fifties uh, age group, uh, rough water swim. So I just mm-hmm. thought, I think when I was 19, I thought, well, if she can do it. I should be able to do it. So I, I'm not sure about that, but I think that if and when you do interview Sonoy, one thing that I have instilled in my children that I really have driven home to them, regardless of what they do in life or which way they go, is to be kind, you know, have, uh, be humane, be kind, be aware of, you know, on a human level and just, um, and our, our faith in, in God and our creator and our surroundings and to just keep that perspective in their hearts, you know, at all times. And I know I pretty much, that was one thing that I drove home to, to, to my kids and to Sonoy and, I think to this day, she's a tough businesswoman, but she's also very generous. You know, she's, she's like, you know, she goes, Hey, I've, I've received this open handedly. So I'm going to give it open handedly. So I truly believe that. And she believes too. I mean, that's how she got Blue Crush. She said, you know, I went into a, I think it was like a 7 Eleven or something. And she spent her last few dollars on the sandwich. And when she came out, she saw a homeless guy sitting there and she cut it in half and shared it with them, you know. And, sat down and ate with them. And, and then she goes, the next day I got the call, Hey, you got the part. And so it was, you know, it's not like we do things to get things, but there is that universal law, um, reaping what you sow. Mm. And so I, I know that I've instilled that in them. And so, um, that's all I can say about that handing it down. (laughs) (laughs) What hasn't mattered in the long run in terms of parenting where we have a (laughs) five-year-old now and it's easy to get caught up in the sweating the small stuff, getting caught up in the mundane little bits of everyday life. But your children are grown now and you have perspective that we can't have yet. What do you look back and go, I shouldn't have worried about that. It didn't matter. It doesn't matter in the end. Well, two things came to mind. One was what direction they wanted to take their own lives. You know, like when Sonoy was 15, about 15 or 16, and she said, you know, um, I think Hollywood needs a new face. I'm going, I'm thinking, sure, honey. She goes, I think they need, you know, someone like me. I, I never discouraged them from their dreams, whatever their dreams were. Um, and, you know, just she, she thought she wanted to go be a model. And she wrote down in her journal that I want to be able to serve everything that she wrote happened. She wrote, I want to be able to serve, travel the world, get paid for it, do this. And, you know, I I never just said, sure, because then it happened for her. Hmm. And I thought, wow, you know, so I just, I encourage them, no matter how wild their dreams might seem. And then, um, of course, you want to steer them away from anything you think might be dangerous, but uh, whatever that might be. But even then, they're going to find a way. (laughs) It's like, I just saw this girl coming down a mountain on a 
snowboard vertical. I go, that's her dream. I mean, you're just going, oh my gosh, you, you want to try to save your kids from danger. But, you know, she's finding that in her life too. Like her little girl now really wants to be an actress or model. So I would say just supporting them and know, knowing that they're loved and keeping the communication going so that they don't feel that they have to hide anything from you or you're going to explode if they tell you the truth. So, I mean, sometimes you might be exploding inside or in your head, but you mm-hmm. always want them to be able to come to you and be candid about things so that they can talk to you about anything. So that would be the something that I would encourage. And then for myself, uh, what I was saying is the one thing that I do regret if I could uh, turn back time I would have spent more time with my children, like really into their activities, not just hauling them along on all mine. You know, they everything I wanted to do, they had to come along, whether it was paddling or surfing or whatever it was. They were just, you know, basically going along with my program. And I feel like I should have really been a little bit more into their programs. So um, if I could do it all over again, I would, I probably would have done more of that without necessarily being overly, you know, sometimes there's that fine line between spoiling your child, giving them too much information and losing yourself, like who you are. And, and um, I think if you interview Sinoy, she will probably share that with you, that she felt like she poured so much into her kids in the up bringing in the last decade that she lost a little bit. She goes, God, who I was, you know? And so when we went on that surf trip, it was just so awesome for everybody that went. It touched a little bit of the part of our souls that um, needed to be touched. And um, she goes, man, I got to do this more. I am doing this more. We're going again. So we're going again in March. In preparation of our chat, Today, Lala, I reached out to Matt Ortiz. He's the one who suggested that we absolutely had to have you on the podcast, and I'm so grateful to he and Roxy for connecting us with you. And he wrote, quote, There's a beautiful connection between the legacy of trailblazing in Auntie's life and Sonoy's success as a water woman. Fault aside, Blue Crush was a watershed surf movie. As Chelsea Woody mentioned on your podcast, he wrote, it was a lens into a more diverse surfing experience than previous media portrayals. He refers to you as a trailblazer. Does that ring true for you? Has it felt like a you've been blazing trails these, these past few decades? Yes, absolutely. When I was first surfing, so when I surfed, everything was just amateur. So the amateur, the U.S. contest. So I, I won a U.S. contest. I won some state meets. I won, and and then the women started really improved. There were more women that got into surfing, and once the pro circuit hit the North Shore, the men had a pro circuit, but the women didn't. And Fred Hemmings opened it up to women by allowing one woman to surf against five men. I mean that was. That was his um, offer to let women come into the pro uh, surf scene. And so the women started getting together and we decided that, you know what, the women have to have their own circuit. 
And so we formed a nonprofit called the Hawaii Women Surfing Hui. And what that did was help the women find their own sponsors and find their own way in this professional circuit. And I just remember going, once I get that off the ground, once we have a surf contest that supports just women, lets the women surf against just themselves, they, they, it gets them off on their own feet. I will feel comfortable leaving. It's going to go from there. And then I'm going to move to Kauai. So as soon as the first contest, it was at, it was the Smirnoff. No, was it the Smirnoff? I believe Smirnoff sponsored it. It was at Haleiwa on the North Shore. I remember it was like January 6th of 1975 or 76. And I went, okay, now that's, it's off and running. I can move to Kauai. But I believe that that was definitely a trailblazing moment. And then I'll switch channels quickly over into my paddling. Back when I started paddling, it was only open women. There was no masters, anything. Um, Mm. Once you hit 30 or 35, that was it. I mean, God, nobody wanted, you know, you're old already. So we said, well, we need to get together and start a master's division. And so we did. So it started off being 35 and then it went to 40. And then we said, you know what? The women are still pretty... (laughs) pretty vital here. Let's, then it went to 45 and then 50 and then 55 year olds wanted to also paddle. People doing the channel were going, no, we don't want, we're never going to have any 55 year old out there. They'll be out there all day. But we did. They said, if you can come up with at least three teams and now there's a 55s division. And then a couple of years ago before COVID, we entered the very first 60s division. So I really feel like they did have me speak at one of the Molokai Nawahine races, like, you know, how do you feel about what you're doing? And I said, you know, I feel like being a role model to those behind me that life isn't over at 40 and it's not even over at 50. I don't know. I mean, sometimes it just begins for people like, look at your mom. Mm. When did she start surfing? Yeah, it's in like, her 60s. It's, you know, it's amazing. Exactly. It's like, exactly. So I think just by being role models to the decades of women behind me and just showing them that you can still be really vibrant and active. And there's so many ways you can be involved in life and this. And and there's so much that the ocean and the water has given me that to give back and to introduce others to this, the wonderful activities that people can do in and around the water, regardless of age, regardless of your physical restraint, there's something you can get involved with that will be rewarding. When we spoke previously preparing for this chat, you said something that really resonated with me. And that was, you might not know what you want to do until later in life. And that's okay. Can you expand on that a little bit? I just loved that. Um, Did I say that? Well, you, you know, I, I feel it's all the experiences that you gather over the decades, like what I gathered in my 20s, and then gathered in my 30s, and then gathered in my 40s, you know, all those things you you reevaluate, and you can not necessarily reinvent yourself, but it's a different era now in your life. And you're just going, okay, now that I'm this age, and I've learned this, I'm going to do this with that part of my life. So as long as you're fluid, you know, no pun intended, but, um, and you keep that attitude that you can sort of bob and weave and decide that I'm going to do this now. And I think your mom's a perfect example. I'm going to do this now. And it may be something totally different than what you did in your twenties, thirties, and forties. And wonderful if it is different, because that means that you, you know, you're the neuroplasticity of your brain. I mean, you're, you're constantly learning and 
And um, you don't want to go, you know, brain dead. And you, you want to be um, a contributing member of, you know, your family and your, your, your greater family, your community, your society. Because of what people have decided later in life, many more people have been influenced. So mm. it can always be a good thing. Mm. Just to close, Lala, I'm curious to know what you're most proud of looking back over the decades of your life at this point, and also what you're most looking forward to in terms of ocean adventures. Gee, what I'm most proud of. That's funny that you asked that because I'm always teaching people to stay humble. (laughs) I think I'm most proud of being able to teach others the value of humility, you know, because if you stay humble, there's, you know, really nowhere to go but up. And there's two scriptures. And one is that humility before honor and pride goeth before a fall. So those are, you know, sort of opposite, but contributing factors to one another. And so does that make sense? Mm. Mm-hmm. And that was part one. And what am I looking forward to? The next adventure and you know what the future holds is that more paddling are you are you surfing and paddling at this point in time and swimming or do you focus on sort of one thing at a time well you know what it's whatever the reason why i like to be multi-sport um ocean you know driven is that um the ocean's constantly changing so i like to go with that flow like today it's really windy so maybe i'll get on my one man and do a one a downwind run or, you know, it's whatever the ocean calls for. Like when I see my friends that only surf, they go to the parking lot and sit in their cars and look and stare at the surf. Like that's going to change something. I mean, you know, when a swell's coming up, maybe, you know, they're waiting for the swell to hit. That's one thing. But to be that day in, day out parking lot guy, like, you know, if you're multi, multi-skilled and you, you know, open yourself up to different ocean sports, you'll always have something to do, Mm. you know, even if it's just swimming and swimming is so, you know, one thing I thought about this when I'm swimming, just swimming with goggles, that's all just in the water. When I'm floating in the water, water is a medium that when you're in it, you feel it's timeless, weightless, ageless, it's, it's an amazing medium to be in. And I think that that is just sort of the ultimate feeling or place to be. And it's the simplest form of just floating in the water. Is it, it, There's nothing else like it. Thanks for listening with us today. If you have a spare moment, please leave us a review or consider sharing an episode with a friend. Both help us to find the very best stories from our global community of water people. This episode was edited by Ben Alexander. The podcast soundtrack was composed by Shannon Soul Carroll, with additional tunes improvised by Dave and goofy-footed legends Neil Purchase Jr. and Christian Barker. We'll be continuing today's conversation on Instagram, where we're at Water People Podcast. 